0: Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of The Show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode.
1: Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5. In Phoenix, I'm Lauren Gilger.
0: And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, what campaign finance reports say about efforts by both Republicans and Democrats to control the state legislature.
1: And HIV cases are up 20 percent in Arizona. What's behind the rise?
0: But first, Republicans in the state legislature and Governor Hobbs have both talked about wanting to extend Prop 123, which raised money for schools and is set to expire in a couple of years. But perhaps not surprisingly, they have very different ideas for how they'd like to do it. Today, we'll see details of the governor's plan as she set to unveil legislation seeking to advance her proposal. With me now, as he is every Monday during the legislative session, to talk about what to expect this week at the state capitol this is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Good morning, Howie.
2: Good morning. Yes, we're all anxiously waiting to see the details of the governor's plan.
0: Well, so we know some of the, the broad contours. We know the governor would take more money out of the uh, state land trust than uh, legislative Republicans would. And we know that it would go to more things, more areas than the legislative Republicans plan would. Do we have any expectation of what we're going to see today?
2: Well, I think. I think what we're all hoping to see is the numbers to justify this from the first day that the governor said that she thinks that they can withdraw 8.9 percent of the principal in the land trust fund that funds education to to pay for all of this. Everyone's been saying, "Okay, how does this work? Is it actuarially sound? State Treasurer has already said that anything over about 5.4 percent, which is even more uh, less than the legislature wants to take out. Uh, is probably not sound. The lawmakers are looking at the 6.9% continuing that. That's what's in, being taken now. And that 8.9%, you know, you can... I hate to keep using the, li- the line about lies, damn lies, and statistics, <laughs> but we need to figure out, does this harm the trust? What are the assumptions being put into this? Because, you know, it could be garbage in, garbage out. If you're making the assumption that somehow the the investment in the trust will rise 10% a year, that isn't historically backed. It's been about 7 7.5%. And Kimberly Yee says that they're really counting on the kind of investments we have, which is 60% stocks, 40% bonds to be more in the 5.4%. So we're all waiting to see the details to see whether this is financially feasible, or this is just some pie-in-the-sky political promise.
0: Well, Howie, we should point out, and legislative Republicans have have pointed this out, that the governor is not necessarily needed in this process because what has to happen is for voters to approve this, and the legislature can send a referral to voters without the governor's involvement. So I'm curious what you're hearing about the possibility for negotiations, or or might the legislative Republicans just push their plan through and ignore the governor altogether?
2: Oh, I think that lawmakers are willing to talk about things. In other words, should we include support professionals, you know, librarians, uh, custodians, bus drivers? Should they be entitled to a certain amount of raises? Should we be including some school security features, things that the governor wants to include? But it's going to come down to what they think they can get, A, out of the legislature, and B, voters to approve. Now, remember, Prop 123 which is at 6.9%, which was backed by the governor, backed by much of the education community, and eventually backed by Democrats after they didn't like it originally, only passed by 51%. Right. So you really need everyone to be behind this because people will generally vote no on anything that they don't understand. So there's a lot of pressure on everybody to come up with something that everyone can say, well, it's not my ideal plan, but uh, it's better than nothing.
0: All right. So, Howie, something else coming up today. We talked about uh, photo enforcement. Uh, Speaking of asking voters to to do something, there was a proposal to ask voters to uh, disallow photo enforcement. That was defeated last week. Looks like uh, it's getting another crack
2: today. Well, that's the plan. Uh, Senator David Farnsworth, who heads the Transportation Committee, put it back on the agenda at the request of Senator Wendy Rogers, who is a big foe of this. Now, as you point out, She didn't quite get the votes as the Democrats voted against it. And Senator Frank Carroll, who's from the Northwest Valley, said, I don't think so. I think this should be a local control issue. Now, has Senator Carroll had some sort of epiphany in the last week? Uh, That's hard to say. What Senator Farnsworth said is, look, if Senator Carroll is willing to change his mind, we'll put it up for a vote. I am not going to go through this all again and have the Paradise Valley Police Chief here saying all the things that will happen and how people will die if we get rid of photo radar and, and red light enforcement. So that's one of those to be determined issues.
0: All right. Now, also in that committee, we're going to be talking. They are going to be talking about a street worthy aircraft like are we talking George Jetson car turning into a briefcase kind of situation here.
2: Well, I'm telling you, I've been waiting on my flying car ever since I was a child <laughs> watching the Jetsons in the 1960s. What this is about is more on the technical aspect. You can get an aircraft licensed. You can by the state and by the feds, obviously. You can get a car licensed by the state. There is no procedure to license something that does both. And there's this company called Samson that is making a three wheeled flying car. That would be licensed as a motorcycle on the ground, but is set up to automatically allow the wings to swing out and the back to come up and could take off from an airport. And so they're trying to figure out how to do this. How do you license things to be both? You know, it's it's really comes down to a a, a question of of the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy isn't set up for that. So Mm -hmm. they're looking at that. Now, there are obviously other issues to be decided. Uh, You know, can they these people simply, you know, drive onto the I-10 and when they get up to speed, just go above the traffic. (laughs) I'm assuming the FAA wouldn't like that. But again, this is, this is mainly meant to deal with the procedural stuff. There is one plane on the market. I mentioned the Samson aircraft is about 170,000 for the basic plane. They have upgraded models. And for some people, for a two-seater car, uh, I don't think there's much room for, for storage, but given the price of some vehicles these days, you know, you want to go out and get a nice Lexus or something or or, or one of these uh, lucid motor cars that they produce in Casa Grande, it's going to cost you a lot more. So this is becoming much more of a reality, although, again, I'm not sure we're going to be able to press a little button and have it fold down into a suitcase, a la the Jetsons.
0: All right, we'll get Doc Brown on the phone and see if he can... Uh retrofit your DeLorean for you to uh, go back to the future. That is Howie Fisher of Capital Media Services. Howie, thank you as always.
2: And have a good flight.
1: Well, it is, of course, an election year, and while a lot of the conversation is about the names at the top of the ticket, let's head down ballot for a few minutes this morning and take a closer look at how the campaigns for state legislature are shaping up this early in the election year. Republicans hold a paper-thin one-vote majority in the Arizona state ledge, and Democrats have their eye on taking it away from them in November. And cash is already pouring into those swing races on both sides. Here to tell us more about it all is Wayne Shutsky with KJZZ's Politics Desk. Good morning to you, Wayne. Good morning. All right. So the stakes are pretty high here for both parties. Let's start with how they're looking at this election. Like, what are the Democrats looking at here? What are the stakes for the Republicans?
3: So the, the stakes really are – the Democrats now control the governor's office, as everyone knows. and But uh, Governor Katie Hobbs' agenda is really thwarted in many ways by the fact that Republicans control the legislature. So a lot of the legislation she would like to get through and sign just doesn't have a chance because Republicans won't even bring it to a vote or it uh, doesn't have the votes to get past the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side, the Republicans, their biggest check on Hobbs is the fact that they control that legislature. So right. So they're both hyper-focused on – There's about five races in the entire state that will probably end up deciding who controls the legislature next year. Yeah.
1: Okay. so let's narrow in on some of those races that are going to matter here. Let's start with LD2. This is in North Phoenix. Who have we got here?
3: So we've got uh, Judy Schwiebert on the Democratic side. She's already a a lawmaker in the House of Representatives. She's she's been elected multiple times. She's uh, from what I hear, pretty well liked in that community, a former teacher, a grandmother. She's she's uh, she's got a good connection to that community. On the other side, we've got another A familiar face, Shauna Bullock, who was a a lawmaker in the House of Representatives and then um, was recently appointed last year to fill a vacancy. So she holds the Senate seat right Mm. now. Um, They're both uh, have fundraised quite well in 2023 even though it was a non-election year, both bringing in, I think, uh, Schwebert had about $80,000 and Bullock almost like ninety five or 96000
1: Right. Okay. So, I mean, these are not the billions of dollars we talk about with national campaigns, right? But, but how much does that add up to? Like, give us a sense of how much somebody in another district might, you know, raise for an election.
3: Yeah. You have to look at everything within context. So, these, yeah, these aren't U.S. Senate races, presidential right. <laughs> elections. But within the context of a local race, outside of a few outliers, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, you... In not non-competitive or less competitive races, especially in a non-election year, 2023, you know, I, I've seen people who've raised in the tens of you know, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars. So it's, mm-hmm. it's significantly more.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to LD4 then. This covers parts of Paradise Valley, Scottsdale, Phoenix. This is a split district now, right, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon. What are we looking at for 2024? Yeah. So as you
3: said, it's a split district, which just shows that the voters in that district will choose folks of both parties. They've elected Senator Christine Marsh to the Senate and Laura, who's a Democrat, and then Laura Tarek, another Democrat to the House. And then on the other side, they've elected Republican Matt Gress to the other House seat. He's uh, former budget director for our last governor, Doug Ducey. And, um, The stakes here, again, it's another it's another situation where the Democrats could pick up a seat in the House that, you know, potentially that one vote they need. Um, But on the other hand, the Republicans are just as keen to flip that Senate seat back and maybe boot Tarek as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. LD-16 is on the list as well. This is current Senator T.J. Shope's district. It seems like he might be safe there. But is he?
3: Yeah, I, I pointed this district out because if you look strictly on voter registration, you know, who lives there and who they identify with politically, It looks like a competitive district, slightly leaning Republican, but definitely within those competitive lines. Mm -hmm. But last time around, uh, Shope, who's been at the legislature for, I believe, 12 years now, he beat his Democratic challenger by 11 points. So I wanted to dig into that deeper. Shope also had a great fundraising year in 2023, and the Democrats haven't actually fielded a candidate yet to go against him, (laughs) and and time is running out. Now, he – and now the Democrats tell me they are going to feel the candidate, but they haven't yet said who that is.
1: OK. All right. So let's spend the last few minutes here, Wayne, talking about some other big news on the political front. The state Republican Party had a big meeting over the weekend, elected a new state chair. This, of course, had to happen because the former party chair, Jeff DeWitt, stepped down last week after a tape of him trying to convince Kerry Lake to stay out of this election surfaced. So tell us who is the new chair?
3: After uh, 10 hours on a Saturday, we found out that Gina Swoboda is, is the new chair of the Arizona Republican Party. She um, has a long history of connections to Republicans. She worked on Donald Trump's campaign in 2020. She worked on Carrie Lake's campaign in 2022. But before that, she also worked in the Arizona Secretary of State's office under both Republican Michelle Reagan and Democrat Katie Hobbs, now our governor. Mm. So she does have a background in, in elections. Uh, she is also definitely a figure within this movement, within the Republican Party, that calling into question the integrity of elections, whether our elections are secure or accurate. Um, and she ultimately picked up the endorsement of both Trump and Lake, which really led her to a landslide victory in that race.
1: The other name on the table over the weekend was Jim O'Connor. What happened?
3: Uh, he ended up losing by about a thousand votes out of a, you know, roughly 1900 vote <laughs> chairman election. So not not close. Um, he He... He also kind of threw his hat in the ring, a memo started going around that he asked the Corporation Commission, where he is also the chairman, to uh, an attorney there to weigh in about whether he could even serve as the chair, Since and they said, they said he could. Uh, but ultimately, I think what happened was, is the Trump coming out, uh, late coming out for Swoboda really just put the party apparatus behind her. Trump is still the figurehead, both in the National Republican Party and the Arizona Republican Party. And. What he says usually goes.
1: Yeah. So uh, last thing for you here. I mean, what does this say about about Trump's kind of power over the local party? And does he kind of do this in other states around the country? Uh,
3: I mean, it. it I, I can't speak for other states so much just because I'm not there. But he definitely does still control the pulse here. I yeah. mean, yeah, what he like I said, what he says goes. Um, interestingly, DeWitt is kind of also a Trump fan and Trump's a fan of his. So the fact that he was out, I think, maybe led to Trump canceling the event that he was supposed to appear mm-hmm. on on Friday with Arizona Republicans. But the fact that then Swoboda is the one who's who's now taking that position shows that there's still a close Trump ally in charge of the party.
1: All right. We'll leave it there. Wayne Chetsky with KJZZ's Politics. Just joining us with all the latest here. Wayne, thanks as always. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger.
0: And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, how space lasers are helping scientists study forests here on Earth.
4: So it's been incredibly useful for me, uh, from a basic science standpoint, to look at large-scale drivers of forest biodiversity. We'll hear what these lasers can tell us about the inner workings of these complex
0: systems. But first...
1: School board meetings have become political hotbeds in recent years, as the culture wars and debates over book bans have played out there. Now, one Arizona lawmaker wants to make school boards more political by requiring candidates to run with a party listed by their name. Republican freshman Senator Justine Wadsack's SB 1097 was advanced by Republican lawmakers last week. And our next guest says this might be the last thing that schools need. Lori Roberts is a columnist for the Arizona Republic's Opinion pages. And she joins editorial page editor Elvia Diaz this morning to talk more about it. Good morning to you both.
5: Good morning. Good morning.
1: All right. So Lori, let's begin with you and a little bit of context here. Like school boards have become pretty political of late. Begin with some of that for us. How have we watched this happen?
6: I think that parents really woke up during the pandemic when their schools closed for a long, long period of time And uh, once they began reopening, their eyes had been opened to things that they felt were being taught in the schools that they didn't much appreciate. Um, You've heard them all before, critical race theory, gender ideology, those sorts of things, the feeling that there's pornography in the elementary school libraries, that, that teachers are staying up nights trying to figure out how to indoctrinate your children. So there was this whole group of very conservative parents throughout the country who have um, really awakened to the fact that that school boards are now this hotbed of of conspiracy. And what used to be, I mean, back when I covered school boards, it's the sleepiest place you ever want to be. It's usually <laughs> just a group of parents and and public school supporters who, who agree that to volunteer on this board. They do things like curriculum and, and school policy. And now all of a sudden, they've become a battleground in recent years, which is sort of the lead into where we are today.
1: Right, right. So tell us your take on this proposal from Senator Justine Wadsack. I mean, what do you think about this idea of making school board elections political in this way?
6: Well, if you think that the Arizona legislature works well, if you think that the United States Congress works well, that that these um, very partisan split organizations that you can watch even today, watch the border debate this week, is this about good policy for America or is this about splitting off and doing what's right for your party because an election is coming, because Donald Trump says one thing and, and Joe Biden wants another, when most of America is in the middle and just wants some sort of a compromise solution. Mm-hmm. We're going to bring that kind of politics into school board elections now. And according to uh, Senator Wadsack, she would like to not just stop there. I'll, I want to read you the, one of the quotes from her, her hearing last week before the Senate Education Committee. Mm-hmm. This is a quote, direct quote. We should have partisan maybe... Partisan judges. Maybe we should do partisan everybody, because right now the world is split, I think, and you have people that want to live their lives by one ideology and others that want to live by another, and they get to choose. So her point is now that we not only need partisan school boards, maybe we need to go back to partisan judges. Hmm. Um, Is that really where we want to be going? Do we want judges, for example, who are beholden to a political ideology or do we want judges who are beholden to uphold the law? It's the same with school boards. Do we want school boards that seek consensus to try to solve the problems and make schools better or do we want each of them dug into their respective potholes just to shoot at each other and never get
1: anything done. Hmm. So it's an interesting question. Let me turn to you, Elvia. These kinds of elections, like school boards, city government still, they're nonpartisan elections. I wonder, though, does that mean you think that voters don't know where people that they're voting for stand politically?
5: Well, and I think that's the issue here lauren that uh everything is political and we can't kid ourselves you know just the fact that we don't know the political affiliation doesn't mean that this school curriculum hasn't been political from the beginning so everyone has an agenda and when you get onto a school board, either a parent or a community member, I mean, they do it because of an agenda. But one thing that it is very clear, and that Lori was mentioning, is that when you make it party affiliation, then you're only concerned about getting elected again. And, and you know, as she said, beholden to the people that are electing you, and that injects a different, um, a different dynamic to. To the the school curriculum and everything to do with public funding and where the money is is going to go to, how it's going to be distributed. So it'll it'll be just chaos. But it, it is political already, and the conservatives have made that very clear even long before COVID. lorry was mentioning it. Was, I mean, they had already laid the groundwork there, and it was right, you know, and it's it's, it's true. Uh, parents woke up during the during the pandemic, but it was uh, it was already. In the process of being this so political and so divisive,
1: mm. Laurie, what do educators have to say about this?
5: They're pretty much united against this
6: idea. The only organized uh, group that I have heard that is for it is the Arizona Free Enterprise Club, which is, of course, a well formerly dark money group because you can't have dark money in Arizona anymore, thankfully. Um, but a, a group that is pretty aligned with the very far right. Um, they they are for this bill. The School Board Association, the Association of Business Officials, the county superintendent organization, they're all um, in opposition to it. And one of the reasons is is that um, if you have partisan school board elections, that would mean that when a school board member resigns for whatever reason, and remember we have 200 boards, 200 plus boards across the, the state, so so there's probably a lot of resignations. That person must be replaced by somebody in the same political party, especially in some of our rural areas. You you have a hard time finding any warm body who's willing to sit on the school board, much less having to found someone of a particular party that was mm-hmm. elected to the position. So it's just yet one more problem with it. I will point out that 41 states require nonpartisan elections, only four require partisan elections. And then the rest the rest of them leave it to the local communities to decide whether or not they want to have partisan elections.
1: Yeah. Let me end with you here, Elvia. I wonder, when you look at these sort of nonpartisan elections and how, as Laurie just outlined, most states around the country require this for school boards. There are many other local elections that are also nonpartisan. Do you think the idea of that is enough, like like that those kind of very local governmental bodies function better because there is sort of at least least a veil of bipartisanship, nonpartisanship in these governmental bodies?
5: This at the very least is one thing that you don't have to worry about. If you are a board member, that you can actually try to work across the aisle, literally speaking here. And you can really look at what is best for, for the children and what is best for parents without having to worry about Uh, your political affiliation, people attacking you in the next election or attacking you because you are a member of a certain political party. So, yes, I I, I do think it makes a difference.
1: Yeah. Okay. we'll leave it there for now. That is Elvia Diaz, editorial page editor with the Arizona Republic, joined by Lori Roberts, columnist this morning to talk more about this proposal. Thank you both for coming on. I appreciate your take here. Thank you. It's been a long time since an HIV diagnosis was a death sentence. With effective treatment and preventative care, many people live with HIV and can prevent spreading it today. But new cases of HIV are way up in Arizona, 20% in 2022, according to the Arizona Department of Health Services. And many in the field are concerned about getting the message out to a new generation that HIV is still here and you can still get it. Dr. Ann Kalsa has been working to treat HIV for 30 years. She's the medical director at Valleywise Health McDowell Community Health Center. I spoke with her more about these latest numbers and what she's seeing on the ground today.
7: On the ground in our clinic, since we are kind of the safety net clinic, we haven't actually seen the jump because we've continuously been getting 20-plus new patients per week in our clinic for several years. Wow. So it's just continuing for us.
1: So what, what's the difference there? You said because you're the safety net clinic. What does that mean exactly?
7: Um, it means patients who get newly diagnosed who don't have insurance uh, end up coming to us first. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing, as we'll discuss later, is a lot of the new cases are in young gay men of color and frequently they're not currently engaged in health care because otherwise young healthy guys, they don't need insurance. So many of them do end up with us initially. And so that's why our numbers are fairly consistent.
1: Interesting. OK, so what do you make of those numbers, though, of of the overall picture being representing a pretty significant jump in cases of HIV here in this state? Like, what do you think might be behind that?
7: So indeed, as you said, there's been a 20 percent increase in the uh, number of new cases reported in 2022 versus 2021. Part of that is because in 2020, testing was way down during the COVID epidemic, but even if you look at the curve and discount that dip that occurred in 2022, the numbers are still going up. That also somewhat parallels the 19% increase that we also have in funding for testing. There is this nationwide effort that's been going on now for several years called End the HIV Epidemic. So part of this increase may be that we have more funding and we're therefore doing more testing.
1: What about demographics? You mentioned a group or two that are more at risk or that you're seeing this rise right now. Where are you seeing it?
7: Our new cases are parallel with what we're seeing statewide and countywide. And 66% of all the Arizona cases uh, occurred in Maricopa County. Uh, So we're seeing the same thing. And that, again, is mostly in men who have sex with men, which is 56% of all the cases, as well as in persons born male, which is 86%. So, again, it's in the young men. And then the majority of those are occurring in the 25 through 29 and 30 through 34-year-olds. So, again, it's young active healthy people who aren't taking precautions yet.
1: There's also a trend here we're seeing right a fewer cases of HIV among white people a rise in cases specifically in the Hispanic community. Are you seeing that?
7: We still see high rates in the Hispanic community, less in the white community, that is true. And I think a lot of that is awareness and prep.
1: Mm-hmm.
7: So the the white gay community, so to speak, has a pretty high rate of of taking up and using PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is covered and available. Uh, But it's less known about and utilized in the young men of color.
1: And that's the medication that, you know, you can take every day to sort of prevent contracting HIV.
7: Absolutely. And that's one of the three pillars that are part of the Ending the HIV Epidemic Program nationwide, which is testing, prevention, and treatment, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so there is funding for prevention or prep. So even we have a lot of people uh, without actual health insurance, and even without health insurance, you can still get the medicine covered.
1: Hmm. What do efforts look like in terms of like getting the word out there to those communities that don't have it yet? That you can get on prep, that you should prevent things in this way, or protect yourself in these ways. That this still is a problem.
7: There are campaigns that are out on the connecting apps, you know, Grindr, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's messaging out in uh, a lot of the places where people congregate, gay bars, gay pride festivals. Um, I know that public health, when people go in to get tested, they are, this is discussed and they are referred for PrEP, but still we aren't getting down into the actual communities of color enough.
1: I know you said a lot of this conversation still revolves around the gay community, but it's not just people in that community that are still being diagnosed and and contracting HIV, right? Oh, no,
7: absolutely. We've got plenty of, of folks who identify as heterosexual or injection drug use. The injection drug use community is often the most marginalized and aren't always treated well in the medical community, you know, they may be viewed with some derision, et cetera. But we've got plenty of uh, newly diagnosed folks who are heterosexual. And so it's really just a body fluid contact illness.
1: So let's talk about the sort of long view on this, which you clearly have. You've been doing this work uh, for, you know, 30 plus years. As you watch these sort of shifts in trends like go up and down, like there was a point at which HIV and AIDS was killing people. Right. And now we are not in that place anymore. But prevention and getting the message out there still is a challenge in lots of ways. Can you kind of put that into context for us with what it's like watching a rise now with your with your long view on it?
7: Absolutely. So, I think in a sense it was almost easier back in the day when people were getting sick and dying because there was a sense of urgency. Mm. It's like, oh my god, I don't want to die like I just saw my friends die. I'm going to get in and get treatment blah blah blah. But now it's so much taken the back burner that frequently I have people who are newly diagnosed and me they'll comment that they didn't think it was still a thing. So we don't have enough public attention and awareness of this, that it is an ongoing long-term issue. And I think the other thing is because this is an illness that is often linked around sexual activity, until we get over our social human hang-up about discussing this, uh, then it continues to so it bite us from behind because we're not being aware of it. We're not paying attention to it, where what, what we're really trying to do is normalize this to be just another health risk, like seat belts and smoking and cholesterol. And it's just another thing that needs to be asked and tested for. In fact, that's one of the emphases in the medical field is to try to make uh, HIV testing a routine part of healthcare and instead of saying, hey, would you like to do an HIV test so we can be super complete, reframe it and mm-hmm. say, hey, to be super complete, we do testing for everything. We're going to run an HIV test today. Is that okay?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they have
7: to opt out. But again, we've got to get people talking about it. And it even unfortunately, in the healthcare profession, there are many providers who do not want to bring it up because they don't know that it's not a death sentence or they don't want to discuss sex.
1: So even in the healthcare world, this is a challenge. Oh yeah, Hmm. oh yeah. Is it frustrating, Dr. Kolsa, having done this for 30 years to watch the numbers go up by numbers like this by 20% when it's something that, you know, at one point it felt like maybe we had solved?
7: Absolutely. I hate to see young people come in newly diagnosed because it's so preventable. And I've got three young adult children. Mm-hmm. Heaven forbid any one of them ever end up in the clinic. It's completely preventable. You just don't need to go down this pathway.
1: Yeah. All right, we'll leave it there for now. That is Dr. Ann Calsa, Medical Director at Valleywise Health McDowell Community Health Center, an expert in HIV treatment, joining us to talk more about this. Dr. Kalsa, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I appreciate it.
7: Absolutely, thank you for bringing attention to this.
1: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger.
0: And I'm Mark Brody. The ongoing war between Israel and Hamas has been on the minds of people in Paris as there have been talks there about a potential ceasefire in Gaza. With me via Skype for our weekly look at some of the key global stories in the coming days is the BBC's Rob Hugh Jones in London. And Rob, what do we know about this so far?
8: Yes. So we know that an Israeli delegation did arrive in the French capital uh, and held talks over the weekend, which were described as constructive. Um, Interestingly, uh, the U.S. was involved in those, as was Egypt and Qatar, and those countries are mediating for Hamas. So the Hamas voice, if you like, is uh, being projected through those two countries at the meeting. Um, Now, U.S. negotiators uh, were said to be cautiously optimistic that a deal is within reach. Um, And the proposal is that Israel would suspend its fighting for about two months in exchange for the release of the remaining hostages still held by Hamas. So, of course, this is a really big deal. Could there be a ceasefire? Could there be a return of the hostages? Uh, President Biden spoke spoke by phone to leaders of Egypt and Qatar Uh, to try and narrow the remaining differences. Now, I should say that Israel says significant gaps remain, so no deal struck as yet. But we're definitely watching that this week because if those negotiations go on, uh, there could be an interesting and positive result, which we'd all welcome, of course, later in the week. And, of course, this comes against the background um, mark of those three American soldiers killed in the logistics uh, base On that border between Jordan and Syria, not just three Americans killed, but many injured as well in that. And uh, the U.S. is blaming an Iranian-backed radical militia group. Uh, This wouldn't be surprising particularly because those groups have been attacking Americans in the Middle East uh, for some months now. In fact, a recent report suggested 150 such attacks have happened, although this seems to be the first that has actually killed Americans since the October 7th Hamas attacks on southern Israel. But of course, this is all uh, feeding into this very volatile atmosphere that we have right now across the Middle East uh, and even newspapers here in Britain. This morning, the Financial Times, The Guardian here in Britain, were even, even raising the specter of some war eventually between the U.S. and Iran, uh, Iran, of course, distanced itself from these accusations, says it had nothing to do with these, but a lot of people are not so sure. So that, that's the situation we're in right now. All right. So, Rob, from one area of
0: conflict to another now, let's go to Ukraine, where lots of uh, different potential angles coming up this week, including some high-level meetings there. What should we be looking out for in this area?
8: Yes. When you look at the diary this week, you see that uh, European Union ministers responsible for defense are meeting tomorrow in Brussels. On Wednesday, EU foreign ministers meet in Brussels. And on Thursday, there's an EU summit. So that brings together the leaders of the 27 members of the European Union. And uh, Ukraine is very high up their agenda. Uh, This comes against the background of an operation that's going on at the moment, whereby 90,000 NATO troops are involved in something called Operation Steadfast, and when you look into what that is, it says it's designed to prepare the alliance, the NATO military alliance, better should any future conflict break out between Russia and NATO. You know, So the temperature is kind of going up on this as well. Even the presidential election that's just happened in Finland over the weekend, well, that would normally be about other things. But this time, it's all about Finland's admission to NATO last year and just where each candidate is on the spectrum in terms of uh, whether they agree with that posture or not. So Ukraine is really having a big influence here in Europe, not least because uh, Europe looks to America and thinks, well, hang on, if Donald Trump gets back in in November, he has said that he could bring this war in Ukraine to an end in one day, he said, and that is being interpreted here as uh, reducing uh, american aid to ukraine and thereby tilting uh, the war in favor of the kremlin and therefore europe is working hard to try and uh, figure out what its position would be in supporting ukraine if there was a reduction in u.s support so that's where we are at the moment another big week for ukraine absolutely all right rob finally
0: uh, something a little different uh, this week facebook will be celebrating its 20th birthday i assume some folks will be celebrating with cake others not so much
8: Yes, absolutely. And actually, I was talking to uh, a radio station in in Australia and another one in New Zealand earlier on this morning over here and um interestingly they they were fascinated by this they couldn 't believe that Facebook was twenty years old <laughs> but but really, it is back on February the fourth two thousand and four uh, Mark Zuckerberg, of course, in that dorm room in, at Harvard that uh, we all know we all know the story yeah and uh, and kind of what happened but it is remarkable that now. Uh, Twenty years on, Facebook claims to have three billion monthly active users. So to go from that dorm room to three billion monthly active users—if that—if you agree—the the figures from Facebook is quite extraordinary. But of course, people do remind you when you mention that that um, of the various controversies that Facebook has has faced along the way. Uh, not least the Cambridge Analytica scandal. If you remember back in the 2010s, uh, the personal data of millions of Facebook users was collected without their consent by the British consulting firm Cambridge Analytica, predominantly to be used for political advertising. And that was a big scandal at the time which Facebook had to be had to apologize for and was fined for. Um, and even this coming week, the Senate Judicial Committee in Washington is holding a hearing into online child sexual exploitation and guess what um, testimony is uh, being taken there from Meta the owners of Facebook of course and other social media companies as well it just underlines the fact that these companies despite their, their enormous uh, significance and growth are also facing these kind of dogged uh, issues around, uh, around online use and so on um, and, and have been for some years now. Absolutely. All right. That is the BBC's Rob Hugh-Jones in London. Rob, good
0: as always to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Mark.
1: Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger.
0: And I'm Mark Brody. Lots of scientists here on Earth are studying forest health and biodiversity, but not many of them are doing that work by using a space laser. Chris Hackenberg is, though. He's an assistant research professor in the School of Informatics, Computing, and Cyber Systems at Northern Arizona University, where he studies how to use remote sensing like LIDAR to characterize forest structure and then use that information to make predictions on wildfire severity, carbon sequestration, and biodiversity. Hackenberg joins me to talk more about his work. And Chris, what exactly
4: is this kind of LIDAR you're using? What is it and how does it work? Well, there's two primary types of LiDAR that I'm using. The first is airborne, which means it's mounted on a small plane that's flown over over 30 sites across the United States. That's run by the National Ecological Observation Network. Uh, the second piece of LiDAR that we're using is JEDI, is the acronym that stands for Global Ecosystem Dynamics Investigation, which is a NASA sensor on the international space station. Uh, The main difference between the two is that airborne LIDAR is flown over smaller swaths over landscapes, which we can patch together on the scale of about 100 kilometers to 250 kilometers squared. Jedi, on the other hand, uh, is passing overhead every 90 minutes on the International Space Station, and it samples the uh, entire Earth's surface. Uh, minus the extreme high latitudes at the poles. And that's just because the International Space Station doesn't cross that area. So
0: what are you able to see with that that you're maybe not able to see and determine
4: from other forms of mapping? So uh, what's unique about JEDI is that it's the highest resolution and densest sampling of any LIDAR System that's put into orbit. And it's the first designed specifically to measure canopy structure. So, what it enables us to do is to map the three dimensional volume of the forest from space. And by three dimensional volume, what I mean is the vertical distribution of everything you can think of in a forest the branches, the leaves, the needles, from the ground all the way up to the top of the canopy. And what uh, is also unique about Jedi is that it has global coverage.
0: Does having that kind of coverage and maybe that kind of consistent coverage also help you determine when there are changes and maybe detect them a little more quickly?
4: So, the power of Jedi and spaceborne LiDAR in general is the ability to characterize the three dimensional volume of the forest, which we can use to. Uh, determine things like carbon stored and carbon sequestered, as well as biodiversity habitat. In terms of uh, high-frequency detection of, let's say, things like deforestation, uh, there are other sensors that are uh, better tuned to uh, those sorts of investigations.
0: So when you talk about the three-dimensional structure of the forest, I assume that means going beyond trees and, and really looking at plants and shrubs and basically anything else that might be in or on the forest.
4: Exactly. yeah. So the ground instruments, for example, terrestrial LIDAR, which is not too different, which is from the LIDAR technology that's on some autonomous driving cars. Mm-hmm. Um, is able to give us a wonderful, very high-resolution view of what's immediately surrounding it. At a slightly coarser scale is the airborne LIDAR uh, that nonetheless gives us a uh, map of a structure over greater e- extents uh, from hundreds to 250 kilometers squared. JEDI gives us a global picture of, of uh, forest structure, however, at the cost of some of that resolution. So we can get a fairly clear picture of the distribution of branches from the ground to the top, but we're not able to detect individual plants or individual shrubs. We, can, uh, we get a coarser signal that nonetheless we can use an aggregate across the globe to be a very powerful indicator of, again, things like carbon sequestration, and uh, biodiversity habitat.
0: Right. Well, so then on a practical level, like how do you anticipate actually deploying this? Like in what ways might this be useful to people who do what you do?
4: So it's been incredibly useful for me uh, from a basic science standpoint to look at large-scale drivers of forest biodiversity because I can use the single sensor to assess forest structure in places like New Hampshire or Puerto Rico or Hawaii or the Pacific Northwest, very different types of forests, and to assess how the forest structure in those places may be driving or constraining the biodiversity therein. And with statistical models, we can predict a continuous surface of biodiversity across the United States. uh, In in this study and in other studies, uh, we've been using this to map the distribution of endangered animals like the clouded leopard in Southeast Asia. And in other cases, uh, we are using this to be able to determine wildfire risk and severity potential by looking at total amount of fuels that are potentially combustible in a wildfire, but also critically the vertical and horizontal continuity of those fuels. So in other words, if there are ladder fuels that will enable fuel to get or excuse me, that will enable fire to get up into the canopy. Um, and horizontal c- continuity refers to fire moving from kind of point A to point B on the landscape given the appropriate amount of fuel in between. And so JEDI allows us to map this at large scales in a very consistent manner and critically use it with other types of data. Right. So I've got to ask, how cool is it to be able to tell
0: people that you study forest health and what's going on on Earth by using space lasers?
4: I'll admit it. Uh, it is pretty cool uh, to be able to, uh, yeah, tell the niece and nephew uh, <laughs> what what I've been working on. They get a kick out of that, uh, you know. Their crazy uncle uh, working with space lasers, um, but you know what really drives me is both the underlying science. I am just fascinated by the fabric of life and the biodiversity that evolution, billions of years of evolution, has created, and then. You know, on, on top of that, of course, the applied aspects. So being able to assist in international conservation planning and policy and to assist in wildfire mitigation to reduce potential harms, uh, for, especially for vulnerable communities to those wildfires, that really inspires me. Right. Interesting. All right. That is Chris Hackenberg, assistant
0: research professor in the School of Informatics, Computing and Cyber Systems at NAU. Chris, thanks so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. No better way to end a show than talking about space lasers.
1: You got Jedi in there, too. That's I know right. it's an acronym, but still. Yes. Yeah, very cool. Very <laughs> too cool good. stuff. Too good. That'll do it for this Monday edition of the show. We will, of course, be back with you again tomorrow morning with much more. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KJZZTheShow. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us.
0: That's it for this episode of the show podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit the show.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.